I want you to notice Robbie isn't here today, and the reason is is because Kara had their fourth child. And so, um, yeah, isn't she cute? This is Elliot. Uh, she was born at 4.30 a.m. this morning. So um, when you have a chance, reach out to Robbie and Kara and tell them congratulations. Um, by the way, in the worship team, Grammy, mean, without him, just at last minute, they're able to, we're just so blessed to have so many people volunteering and using their gifts and uh, tell them thank you when you see them as well. All right, so this morning we're going to continue on our sermon series about relationships built on love. And this is our final message about this. Um, this is how love is rekindled. And so um, before you get too comfortable, we are going to stand one last time for eight weeks, okay? So everybody stand and let's rehearse our memory verse uh, that we've been working on. Hopefully some of you have at least memorized two words out of this in eight weeks. I, I hope it's more than that. But all right, all of us together, let's do the verse reference and then the verse John chapter 13, 34 through 35, a new command. Thank you. You may be seated. Love. Last week, um, as we were bringing this series to conclusion, I shared with you that love is very possible to harden over time. Matter of fact, many of you have experienced that. I know I have. That sometimes we used to serve, we used to minister to people, we used to have people in our houses, and then we got hurt, something happened. And we closed our heart off to people. We no longer take the risk to serve, no longer take the risk to open up our houses. Uh, whatever that may look like, over time, our hearts, if we're not careful, can be hardened. And physically, in the physical world, medical professionals will tell you uh, that there is something called hardness of arteries. Arthrosclerosis is the hardening of our arteries. And that happens by fatty deposits and high cholesterol and, honestly, age. Uh, our age, our, our arteries aren't as elastic as they used to be. And so what happens is they get clogged. But I've got good news for you. There's solutions. You could be like a bunny and eat vegetable. I'm kidding. Um, that, that could, you know, diet's a solution, right? Medical professionals, well, yeah, diet helps. And, and, then, and then you could do a bypass, like, no one's signing up for that anytime soon, but a bypass would help. Or an angioplasty, you could have a, a balloon put in your artery and expand it. I mean, there's many different ways to solve a hard heart uh, in a physical sense. But there's a spiritual hard heart, too. Over time, when we get hurt, we spiritually can become hard. And when that happens, God gives us a solution. We can rekindle the love in our heart. When it's been hardened. This week we're going to look at a section of scripture where Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's house. Simon the Pharisee has invited him to eat there. And in this encounter we're going to see a woman who is going to come to Jesus' feet. And start crying and wiping his feet with her hair. And then anointing it with oil. And in this section of scripture, we're going to see why the Pharisee Simon doesn't love as he should, which is going to positively show us how love is developed. And we're going to see why the woman actually loves Jesus so much. 
In this story, we're going to answer this one question. How does God rekindle our love for him and others? How does God rekindle our love for him and others? Please turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 47. Very familiar passage with you or for you this morning. How does God rekindle our love for himself and others? God teaches us to trust his power to change people. The root of being able to love others exists within faith. Uh, These three remain, Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Faith, hope, and love. You see, faith and love are linked together. You can't love unless you take a risk. You can't love unless you believe God can change people. And here we see that um, the Pharisee doesn't believe God can change people. At least the way he acts is betraying. He doesn't believe it. Have you ever watched one of my favorite cartoons as a kid, Winnie the Pooh? Have you ever been an adult, your kid's left, and you're still watching Winnie the Pooh? Okay, don't answer that one. One character on Winnie the Pooh is really funny to me. Because he represents so many of us well. His name is Eeyore. And Eeyore is a donkey, and he is what color? Gray, because gray symbolizes clouds, gloominess. How many can rate that in Alaska? And, and Eeyore has a tail that keeps falling off. And Eeyore, I don't know if you realize this or not, but almost every episode Eeyore is in, his house is destroyed and they have to rebuild it. It's... And he walks around like this, with his head down all the time. Matter of fact, there's this one episode that Piglet comes by. Piglet, you know, it's like, kind of like Tigger. He's happy-go-lucky, jovial guy. He comes by and says, good morning, Eeyore. And Eeyore, with his head down, goes, I suppose it's a good morning for some. This is Eeyore. Eeyore never has anything positive to say or look at. And I will confess to you, uh, more days in my life I've been like Eeyore instead of like Piglet. I've been Eeyore more than I've been Tigger or Christopher Robin. This, this idea that everything we see is negative. And, and I honestly think that certain personalities gravitate to this more. And uh, mine certainly looks for, okay, where's the catch? Okay, what's the hook? Okay, where's the bottom going to fall out here? And, uh, and I think that this is what the Pharisee looks at. And because of it, he isn't able to love like God wants him to love. Uh, notice what happens here in, this, in these verses. Verse 36 through 37, we find out why the Pharisee doesn't believe God can change things. Look at what he says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. 
I want you to notice what the Pharisee sees here. He sees this woman who comes to wash Jesus' feet. She's crying, obviously. Jesus has obviously impacted her life over the last few days. This isn't like just this woman shows up and starts crying. I mean, she's interacted with Jesus somewhere along the way. She's broken. She's crying. And, And what does the Pharisee automatically do? He automatically looks at Jesus to judge him and delegitimatize him. You see, he isn't interested in why she's crying. He could care less what she's doing. What he cares about is he doesn't believe Jesus in the first place. Now, that's interesting. The reason why that's interesting is because a day before this, we find out in in chapter 7, verse 1, a day before this, Jesus is in a town right next door called Nain. And in the town of Nain, there's this funeral processional. And there's this boy who is being led out. He's dead. He's being led out in the funeral processional. And Jesus goes up to him, touches him, and he awakens from the dead. Now, have you ever been in a public place where there was a funeral and all of a sudden the person came back to life? Okay. If you were in such a situation, how many people would you tell? Mm -hmm. And this Pharisee knows Jesus rose a boy from the dead yesterday. And he's looking at him and what's he saying? If he were a prophet, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. (laughs) What in the world is that? Like, really, think about this. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, I try to put myself in this Pharisee. I'm like, this Pharisee's shoes. I was like, would I do the same thing? Because what is he doing, really? He's not believing what he's heard. He's not believing what he's seen. And he's questioning everything when God is doing. Like, really ask yourself, when's the last time he saw a person raised from the dead? This guy's a religious leader. He does funerals all the time. When do you think the last time you ever saw a guy raised from the dead? The answer is never. He's never seen that. Listen, I don't know about you, but at this point, if I was the Pharisee, I wouldn't be questioning whether this guy is a prophet. I'd be inviting my mom and dad who were terminally sick. I would be inviting all of my friends, my nieces and nephews who were sick. Why? Because I love them and I want them to be healed. Do you see this? He can't love because he is looking at negative all the time. He can't love because he, he doesn't believe Jesus can really change people. That's what's happening. It's amazing. Jesus is changing people in his midst and he still can't believe it. And... Um, Listen, I I researched this this week. You can go research this. In four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in three years, over four Gospels, we never once see the Pharisees bring anyone to Jesus to be healed, although they are the pastors of the day. Actually, we do see them bring one. We see them bring one person in Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. And it is a guy who has a withered arm, and they bring him to the synagogue on the Sabbath in order to get Jesus to perform a miracle so that he'll break the law. They don't care about the guy withered hand. That's the problem. They not only don't care about the guy with withered hand, they don't care that Jesus can heal him. See, their, their, their negativity has shut off the fountain of God's faith. And we know this, that uh, Jesus went to certain towns, Corson and Bethsaida, and he said um, many miracles he would have done in them, but he didn't do hardly any miracles in them because they had little. What if, what if 
Our faith determines how much we experience God. It doesn't negate God. He just allows other people to experience the things he had in store for us, but we don't believe. And I think that's what's happening with this Pharisee. John Bassanio was a pastor of First Baptist Church in uh, Houston, Texas for a long time. And he shares a story about his five-year-old daughter, Melody. And Melody uh, interrupted him when he was studying at his home one day. He was studying in his study, and he was looking out the backyard. And Melody came in, and she said, Dad, 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 would you build me a dollhouse? And dad put down his book and talked to her, and finally she got it out of him. Yes, I promise, Melody, I'll, I'll build you a dollhouse. And she was so excited. She left. He picked up his book. An hour later, his wife came in with lunch. He puts his book down, starts eating lunch, looks out the window, and there's Melody. And she's taking sheets and towels and dolls and dishes out to the yard. And she does this five times. She takes all this stuff and puts it out in the yard in a big heap. And he looks at his wife and he says, what is Melody Jane doing? And she goes, oh, well, her father promised to build her a dollhouse. And she is getting prepared for it. And he said, it hit me like an atom bomb between the eyes. I put down my book and I went to the lumber store and bought wood. And I want to tell you why he did it. Listen to what he says. He says, now, why did I respond? Because I wanted to? No. Because she deserved it? No. Her daddy gave his word, and she believed it and acted upon it. And when I saw her faith, nothing could keep me from carrying out my word. And is this not just like our Heavenly Father? He says, ask and it will be answered. Uh, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And, And if God asks us to pray for our neighbors to pray for each other continually, if God asks us to give generously, if God asks us to serve, then that means he must want to use us in faith to love other people. Generosity is not generosity unless it benefits others. Serving is not serving unless it benefits others. Everything we do is for the well-being of others. And when we do that, God supernaturally shows up. But I'm going to tell you right, this, right now, if you don't believe God can change people, you'll never pray for your neighbor. If you don't believe God can change things by you serving, you'll never serve. If, God, if you don't believe that God can outgive you when you give, you'll never give. The truth is, is that love only happens when we believe that God can change things. But notice this. There's a second thing this Pharisee's doing. He actually believes that sin is greater than God. That's interesting. He looks at the woman's sin and doesn't believe God is big enough to change it. <laughs> I find this interesting. This woman, by the way, she's probably a prostitute. Matter of fact, most church fathers believe that this woman's a prostitute. And there's a couple of reasons why. Here's the first one. Because everybody knows she's a sinner, which means her sin is public. Everyone knows it. So therefore, she's well known publicly. She's probably a prostitute. Here's the second reason. Because she has a vial of perfume, and perfume was used by prostitutes in their profession. More than likely, this is a prostitute. And uh, she's at a Pharisee's house. Now, that's interesting. What is she doing at the Pharisee's house? 
Because last place I would be caught dead in is a pastor's home if I was actively a prostitute or anything close to that. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think she's ever been to this guy's house because of the fact of shame. I don't think she's ever been here. I think this is the first time here. But there was a cultural background issue going on here. You see, in, in small towns in the first century in Israel, when you had a guest teacher who was well-respected and well-liked visit the, the town, they would teach on synagogue on Sunday morning, or Saturday morning, sorry. And then afterwards, a lot of the times, the religious leaders of the town would invite them over for dinner. So you've got this Pharisee inviting Jesus over for dinner. And what happens is, is that everyone else in the town is invited in, but they're only invited along the wall of the courtyard and they can listen to the conversation. They can't interject. So this woman is not alone. She's one of many. She just happens to be the only one weeping and, and crying and wiping Jesus's feet with her hair and oil. That's, that's what's going on here. There's a lot of people here. They're all watching. They're all listening to what's happening. And what I know is, is that why in the world would a woman cry in front of 50, 60 people like this? Why? Has anyone gone to church in the last five years and seen someone weeping uncontrollably in the middle of the service because God has so broken them? How often does that happen? Is it a common phenomenon? No, this doesn't happen often. This woman has probably never set foot in this house because of shame. And she's openly crying. And she's taken a vial of perfume and broken. You know how much this vial of perfume costs? It costs a year's worth of wages. She is breaking a vial of perfume and pouring it out on Jesus. This perfume was for her labor. She is basically saying, I'm done with the labor. I'm done with the prostitution. And, and, and what does the Pharisee do? He looks at her and says, she's a sinner. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop. Stop, bro. Stop. Wait. Hold on. Wait. Did you not notice what she's doing? She's repenting. She's, she's coming out of it. No one else is, but he doesn't care. He's judging her by her sin, which means he believes her sin's greater than God's ability to change her. And um, what if we focus so much on other people's sin that we don't see what God is doing within them? I'm going to tell you right now, we can nitpick each other. You ever seen chickens? Chickens are nasty. We've got chickens. They are nasty people. Animals. <laughs> Birds. Raptors. They're nasty. If they don't have something to do, you know what they do? They peck each other's feathers until they bleed. And as soon as they see blood, do you know what the chickens do? They can't stop. They go after the blood until the chicken's dead. And this is what happens when we focus on each other's sin without seeing God at work within us. We keep pecking and pecking and we go for blood and we keep on going and going and going. And this is what he does to people. This is what this Pharisee's doing to people. Now, I, I want to tell you, I'm... I'm, you know, I'm a pastor. You know my story. I've preached to you many times. I am no saint. I am in Jesus Christ, but I, I am no saint. And, and listen, my wife had to marry me, and she didn't know what she was getting into. 
I'm going to tell you right now, I am so glad that my wife has overlooked, that you have overlooked. Yeah, I mean, you, you dealt with me on a lot of stuff, but, but she lasted through all my anger fits. Like, who's ever had an anger problem? You ever been around a person with an anger problem where, where you have to walk on eggshells? Where if they get upset, I mean, you better watch out. Like years I've wrestled with an anger problem and my wife stayed with me and worked through me. Why? I don't know why, honestly, uh, but it has to be this. She had to have seen the work God was doing in me despite the anger problem. And God was changing me over time. And my wife's had to deal with my past. You know, my drug use and, 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 and all of my illicit uh, relationships outside of marriage and all this junk that I brought in. She's had to see me work that out in faith. And she's had to deal with a multitude of other things. How does she do that? She doesn't focus on the bad. She sees the good and knows this. God is still at work in my husband. And... and and that's what we have to, if you want kid, your relationship with kids that change into adults to be a good one, you can't nitpick them for their bad. I mean, certainly don't not address it, but at the same time, you got to encourage them with their good. You got to see where God showed up. The more we peck each other, the more we kill each other, we just drive each other away from God. And uh, that's not good. We have to be patient with one another. I want you to think about this because everybody thinks about this. Yeah, Jason, but doesn't change happen instantly with God? Uh, I would say that people are saved instantly. I would say people come, become holy over time. That's called sanctification. And say, where do, where do you find that? Well, listen, some people change dramatically. Other people, it takes a long time. And the Bible's full of each different kind. Let's think about the father of faith. His name is Abraham. And do you remember Abraham was called to go to a land that he had not been to? He was called to leave his home and everything he owned and go somewhere he had not seen. And because he trusted God, God said it was reckoned to him by faith. It was reckoned to him as righteousness by his belief, right? Did you know that over 25 years, God had promised Abraham a son? And yet over 25 years, there were two times that God lied about his wife being his wife and said it was his sister. She he put her at risk. He put her at risk of, of other people lying with her, Pharaoh and, 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 and others. And, and did you, you know, you would say, oh, yeah, but that was early in his ministry. Oh, no, that was a year right before she had Isaac, which was 25 years after God called him. Friends, sometimes change takes, you know what it took for Abraham to change? God calling him to take his son up to the mountain. That's what it took. And sometimes we have to be patient with one another. This is what this word means. Long-suffering, endure, bear with one another. But the only way we can do that is to notice that God's at work in us. You've got to look at the positive things. You know, he's not such an anger case as he used to be. <laughs> Praise God for that. He's not such a, she's not such a, you know, I can see God at work. It brings us faith and it causes us to love. How does God rekindle our love for him and others? God teaches us to trust his power to change. There's a second point here. How does God rekindle our love for others and and him? Well, God shows us that love actually comes from forgiveness. 
The, the seed of love is embedded in the soil of forgiveness. We cannot love unless we feel loved by God, at least not the way God wants us to. Notice what happens here. Jesus is now going to confront Simon because Jesus is a prophet. He does know what Simon is thinking, even though Simon isn't saying anything out loud. He's reading his mind. And so Jesus is going to tell a parable in order to prove the point that forgiveness is the seedbed of love. Notice what he says here in verse 40 through 47. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other one 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Wow. This is um, quite interesting. What we see here is, is, is what Jesus addresses. Okay, so this, this, nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Nothing has changed. The truth is, is that most people see degrees of sin. I know that. I've dealt with it too. Like, for instance, let me give you an example. How many of you... Um, believe that running a stop sign is the same as robbing a bank. Okay. How many of you believe that we should punish someone the same way if they run a stop sign as if they rob a bank? Any takers on that? Everybody say no. No. Do you want to live in that country? I don't want to live in that country. Get cane whips for spitting on the sidewalk. Oh, man. That's brutal. No one wants to do that. So, so we, we agree that not every sin equals the same amount of punishment, but the problem is that doesn't transfer over to God. You see, Jesus is addressing this. He gives a parable, and he's pointing this out. He's saying there was one person who owed 50 denarii. Okay, that's two months' worth of wages. There was another person who owed 500 denarii. That's two and a half years' worth of wages. But here's the common denominator. What is it? Neither of them could repay their debt. You see, in, in Jesus' eyes, and in God's eyes, he doesn't look at it like Simon. Simon thinks that her sin is greater than his, that what she's done is more evil, and, and he thinks that he deserves to have Jesus in his presence more than she does. That's what he thinks. In God's eyes, in the Bible, God says, Be holy, therefore, because I am Holy, which means he's without sin and he demands perfection. God demands perfection. And who in here is perfect? No one. And so what Simon doesn't understand is, is that because he's got a hidden sin and hers is public. See, everybody knows she's a prostitute. No one can see what's going on inside of him because he's talking to himself. What is his sin? Can you hear the sin? What is his sin? You said it. Pride. Pride. 
It's pride. And in God's eyes, pride is, is, a, is like the sin of divination. In God's eyes, pride and sexual promiscuity are on the same level because it's all rebellion against him. So what does God do? Well, God is righteous and holy and he demands holiness, but God is also love. He also doesn't want his children to depart from him. He also, so what does he do? But before the, the age started, before the foundation of the world, God chose Christ in order to die for our sins. That's what we find. And so there's this substitution. Jesus didn't come to teach us how to live a good life, although he does do that. Jesus didn't come just as an example of how to live. Jesus came to take our place from God's wrath. That's clearly taught in scripture. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is betrayed, right before he goes to the cross, he's praying to God and he's weeping. It says in the text that he's got blood He's like so stressed. He's got blood running down his face. He's crying blood. And listen to the words he says. He says, Father, if it is your will, may this cup pass from me. And he says, not not my will, but your will. Right? Have you ever asked yourself, what is the cup? When you look at it in Scripture, in Isaiah, in Revelation, and all over Scripture, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is praying that the wrath of his father doesn't come upon him. And it's already there. That's why he's sweating blood. And, and when, when he's on the cross, he says, uh, my father, my father, why have you forsaken? He is taking the wrath of God in our place. And this is all over scripture, by the way. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took our sin, even though he never committed sin, he put on the cross and God crucified him to pay for us. Or how about this? Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 through 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Put your name in there, folks. Listen, he was pierced for Jason's transgressions. He was pierced for Jason's iniquities. The punishment that brought us, Jason, peace was on him. By his wounds, Jason was healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned on our our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of Jason. That's heavy, but it's light. Come to me, all you who are heavy and burdened, and I will give you rest. What is his rest? It's freedom. Total freedom from your sins. He paid the price. You don't have to worry about it anymore. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. Now, I want to get to the point here of how forgiveness does this we're going to see this really there's three ways that forgiveness leads to greater love which we see in this passage okay so bear with me here's the first one because forgiveness produces love okay forgiveness frees us to love ourselves which frees us to love others now that sounds selfish doesn't it but it's not you see there are a lot of us who won't forgive ourselves we're we're, we'll forgive others but we won't forgive ourselves. And we walk around angry. You ever heard that term, a monkey on your back? 
A lot of times we use that term for drug use or whatever. Someone's got this addiction they can't put down. Did you know there's monkeys on the back called unforgiveness, mainly of ourselves, that we can't forgive ourselves, so we walk around angry all day, thinking that we need to earn something with God? See, God calls us to live a good life, not to pay for what we did. God calls us to live a good life because we understand what Jesus did. And there's a radical difference there. By the way, there was a a book by a Christian counselor, professional Christian counselor named David Siemens. It's called Healing for Damaged Emotions. He talks about a young pastor who came to him who was having trouble in his marriage. And he talks about how he dealt with an unforgiveness issue that was of himself. Notice what he says in this book. He said, I had already talked privately with his wife. She was a fine person attractive, warm, affectionate, and loving, and totally supportive of him in ministry. But he was continually criticizing her, scapegoating her. Everything she did was wrong. He was sarcastic and demanding and withdrew from her advances, rejecting her love and affection. Slowly but surely, it began to dawn on him. He was destroying their marriage. Then he realized that in his weekend pastorate, he was hurting people through sermons, which were extensively, extremely harsh, and judgmental. Finally, in his desperation, he came to see me. At the beginning of the counseling, he acted like a real man and blamed everything on his wife. But after a while, when he became honest, the painful root of the matter came to light. When he was in the armed forces in Korea, he spent two weeks of R&R in Japan, during the, and during that leave, walking alone in the streets of Tokyo, feeling empty and alone, he succumbed to temptation and visited a house of ill repute three times. He had never been able to forgive himself. He had sought forgiveness with God in his head, but not his heart and himself. I'm sorry, but not his heart. And the guilt plagued him. He had never shared this with anyone, especially his fiancée, whom he came home and later married and is now his wife. He couldn't forgive himself for what he had done and to her. So he couldn't accept her freely offered affection and love. He felt he had no right to be happy. As A.W. Tozer put it, the young minister was living in the perpetual penance of regret. The counselor continued in his book, how beautiful it was to see him receive full, free forgiveness from God and then from his wife and perhaps best of all from himself. I'm telling you, a lot of people are walking around angry and has nothing to do with anyone other than they can't forgive themselves. But if Jesus forgives us, then it's a sin for us not to forgive ourselves. Second, forgiveness frees us to love without manipulation. It frees us to love without manipulation. Listen, I know this. There is a temptation when someone asks forgiveness of you to use what they've done wrong to you as leverage to make them pay and to get them to do what you wanted them to do. It's called spiritual manipulation. We use the brokenness of someone to subdue another to get them to do what we want them to do. That's spiritual manipulation. And some people are really good at it. I'm really good at that. And um, I have to be called on my stuff with that. And that's not forgiveness. See, forgiveness doesn't bring up the past of someone who's hurt us. Forgiveness isn't, notice it this way. When Jesus looks at the Pharisee, and then he looks at the woman, he says, you see this woman here? He's talking to the Pharisee, but he's looking at her. So you see this woman here? She came in here, and, and since she saw me, she's been weeping 
and wetting my feet, and you didn't give me any water to wash my feet. She's been drying my feet with her hair, and you didn't give me anything. She's been kissing my feet since I came. You didn't kiss me. She has anointed my feet with perfume, and you didn't even offer me olive oil. That is the literal text. And then he looks at her and he says, my daughter, your faith is forgiven you, or your faith has set you free. You are forgiven. (laughs) Notice that Jesus doesn't say, my daughter, as soon as you go to every person at this table and cry on their feet and anoint them with oil, you'll be forgiven. He doesn't say, my daughter, as soon as you visit a hundred years worth of sexual uh, addiction recovery classes, you will be forgiven. He doesn't say, my daughter, as soon as you do these hundred different things, I'll trust you and forgive you. He forgives her immediately. And uh, sometimes we, we use people in order to, and it's just wrong. There was once a kid... Um, his name was Johnny. Johnny and his sister Sally were over at their grandparents' house. And they were visiting their grandparents for the summer. And, and Johnny had just gotten a slingshot for his birthday. And he went out to the woods to go practice his slingshot. And he missed everything he was aiming at. And he was really discouraged. He was walking towards the house. It was getting supper time. He saw his grandmother's pet duck. You guessed it. He said, I'm going to try to hit the duck. He took a BB, he aimed a duck, hit him straight in the head, killed the duck, and he panicked. And he ran over the duck, and he got the duck, and he hid the duck underneath a pile of wood, and he looked around, and sure enough, Sally, his sister, had watched the whole thing. That night, he went in for dinner, when they were called for dinner, and Grandma was done, and and, uh, each of them had chores, and Sally's chore was to do the dishes. Grandma said, all right, Sally, come help me with the dishes, and Sally looked at Johnny and said, oh, no, Grandma, Johnny said he was going to do the dishes for me, and then she whispered at him, remember the duck. The next morning, they wake up, and and Grandpa says, "Let's, let's go fishing. And uh, until breakfast time, and then grandma says, oh, no, Sally, you need to stay with me. Remember, you said you would, you would help do breakfast. And Sally goes, oh, don't worry about it, grandma. Johnny said he would do it for me. And she looked over at him and said, remember the duck. And this went on and on like this for four days. Johnny was doing not only his chores, was doing Sarah's chores too. And finally, he came to his grandma and just broke down. And he said, grandma... I, I want you to know, I'm so sorry. I, I hit your duck and killed it with the slingshot. And Grandpa got down on one knee and looked at Johnny in the eye and said, Johnny, I know. I saw the whole thing from my window. And I forgave you the minute that you killed it. But I am amazed how long it took you to come out from under the yoke of your sister. Sometimes we live there. Sometimes we're not free from the slavery of another because they don't grant us forgiveness, true forgiveness. And we need to not hold that over people because God has freely forgiven us. We're supposed to freely forgive. And here's, here's the last thing. Forgiveness means, quite literally, we're supposed to forgive other people. It, we are required. Uh, those who loveth, or those who are forgiven are the ones who love much. Those who are forgiven much love much. And, and how much have you been forgiven? Say all of it. All of it, guys. 
You've been forgiven all of it. It's not just you've been forgiven before you receive Christ. It's after you receive Christ and before he brings you to heaven. He forgives you for the past. By the way, when did Jesus die for you? Before or after you were born? So you confess that Jesus died for you before you even made a sin. And you confess that Jesus died for you even after you became a Christian and still sinned. And you confess that Jesus died for you, not only from your past and your present, but also the future sins that you have in front of you. And we all confess together that Jesus has died for all that we've done. How could we not grant forgiveness to other people? And what is forgiveness, by the way? In man's eyes, forgiveness is, it's aphemy. It means to let go. It means to let go of our desire to hurt other people and our anger over other people who've wronged us. That's what it means to put in God's hands, to trust God with vengeance, to trust God. It means that when we think of the person, we are not thinking about harming them. We're not thinking about hurting them. We instead forgive them because God has freely forgave us. By the way, Ephesians 4.32 says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. By the way, forgiving one another doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation. They're different. Forgiving one another means I fully release my anger and my resentment towards this person and trust God with them. Reconciliation means we make up our relationship. You see, reconciliation has to be two-sided. Forgiveness can be one-sided. Reconciliation has to be two-sided. And reconciliation has to mean you have to rebuild trust, which means boundaries. Like, like I would never suggest to a spouse who's been physically abused by their spouse to forgive them and go move back in with them. That's not like reconciliation and forgiveness. Or Does everybody understand that? And uh, I don't think God would want you to put yourself in harm's way because he loves you and he wants us to live at peace. And so we have to be careful with that. However, I will say this. As Christians, we are supposed to aim for reconciliation. When we can, we are supposed to aim for reconciliation. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We are supposed to be reconcilers. We're supposed to call people to reconcile themselves to God. I'll close with this illustration. There was a book by Pastor Charles Allen called The Miracle of Love, which is fitting for the series. He reports that when he was in fourth grade, one of his dad's best friends was the superintendent of his school district. And unfortunately, his dad and his best friend, the superintendent, had a falling out, and it was a big falling out. And the superintendent hated his dad. And one day, the superintendent did something to this little fourth grade boy that caused major distress in his life that he didn't deserve, all because of the relationship with his dad was broken. And so little Charles in fourth grade remembered this and held on to it for years. The family, the Allen family, they moved eventually. The superintendent stayed in that town. Fast forward 20 years and Charles was in his first pastorate and his first church. And uh, there was an opening for superintendent in that town. And lo and behold, his old nemesis had come to town to apply for the superintendent job. And Charles immediately thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get even I'm going to go tell all the board, because he knew all the board members. I'm going to tell them who this guy is, and surely he's not going to get the job. 
And he decided to get in his car. Listen to what he wrote. He said, I went out to get in my car and go see some of the board members, and suddenly it came over me what I was doing. Here I was out trying to represent Christ as a pastor who was nailed to the cross and died for my sins, and I'm carrying a grudge trying to nail someone else to the cross. That realization was a humiliating experience. I went back into my house, knelt by my bedside, and said, Lord, if you'll forgive me of this, I'll never be guilty of it again. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together, Father, but I know, Lord, this is such a hard issue for us, but I pray that you would help us to let it go, that, Lord God, we would trust you, that, Father, you would rekindle love within us again by realizing that you have the power to change people, that we won't be negative and just define people by their sin, but instead look for the fruit that you have uh, shown us in them. Lord God, I pray that you would just help us to learn how to love because we realize how much we've been forgiven. Help us not to use other people's sin against them as a way to manipulate them. Help us, Lord God, to freely forgive because you've forgiven us. Lord, help us to forgive ourselves, for we know that you've paid the ultimate price. There's nothing we can do to, to give anything back to you. So we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to rejoice and have joy. Lord, we thank you for this time together. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Hey, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be out of the pulpit. I've asked my friend Talon to preach out of Hebrews 12 on the, on the endurance of our faith. And then Dr. Dave Lay from Alaska Bible College is going to come and preach on spiritual disciplines for three weeks after that. And then I will see you guys in the middle of June. Uh, God bless you guys, and we'll see you guys later. Find someone you don't know this morning. Say hello.